So I'm just going to open in prayer, then we'll punch in. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much uh, for the things that you've been showing us, the things you've been revealing us about yourself and ourselves and our need for you because of our sin. Uh, we pray that that continues this afternoon, that you further shape us and enlighten us and inform us of who you are and how much we need you. And thank you so much that you answer that need in Jesus. And um, yeah, we pray that this next hour or so really helps us to understand that better. Amen. I must admit, I've been on a bit of a love-hate relationship for the last three weeks with the Disney um, streaming service. I don't know if you guys have streamed to it. When I say love-hate, because I actually don't really like Disney. So why would I subscribe to Disney streaming service? Anyway, I, I signed up to a trial, and I remember scrolling through it and seeing all this sort of kiddie stuff, you know, stuff that I'm never going to watch. Like, I can't imagine me watching The Little Mermaid. I'm sorry if you're a fan of The Little Mermaid. Or The Lion King, even. I just can't imagine me watching that. Or Frozen, you know? It's just not my vibe. Um, and so when I say love-hate, I've been looking at things that just interest me not at all in the Disney streaming service. I'm probably offending a great, great proportion of the people listening in, but that's okay, let's punch on. I keep saying that. Why do I keep saying that? Push on is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so they're the things I don't like. But there are some things in the Disney streaming service that have me hooked in. And so the first thing is a Star Wars show called The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've heard of it. I'm sort of waiting for it to get better. It's not really there yet, but we'll see. You know, Star Wars, hopefully it's going to come good. The second thing is The Simpsons. The Simpsons. You may not know this. If you're a Simpsons fan, I am. But every episode, as far as I know, every episode of The Simpsons is on Disney. So you can watch every episode, and that's what I'm doing. I'm making my way. I think there's like 26 seasons, right? I should probably sort of stopped at about season 10, but let's not go down that path. Like 26 seasons of The Simpsons are on the Disney app. And so I've been punching my way all the... I've been moving my way all, all through the early seasons, and I'm up to about season three. And we're talking about promises, and I saw an episode that dealt with this so well. Um, I'll give you a bit of a recap of what happened in the episode. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've seen it. It's basically this, this um, scenario where Lisa, who's the daughter in the family, needs to do a recital. But she needs a thing called a reed, which is a bit of wood or something that goes into the saxophone. She's a saxophone player. And she rings up all these people and they can't do it. So she rings her mom, she rings her neighbour, she rings her teacher, she rings some random dude she met on the street. And the last person she goes to is her father, Homer. And if you know the show at all, you know it's a running gag that Homer is incredibly unreliable. Okay, it goes on all the way through The Simpsons. And what happens is, you actually see it happening. He's in this sort of situation where he sees the music store, because he promised his, his daughter he would buy this reed. He sees the music store and he sees the pub. And he goes to the pub instead of the music store, as is Homer's way. Anyway, he does eventually try and buy the reed, but the shop's closed. Eventually, he's, he actually manages to get the reed out of the owner of the store. Eventually, he does it. But the, by the time he gets to Lisa, she's done a recital without the reed. The music sounds horrible. She's humiliated. And um, the relationship between the two of them is broken down completely. So Homer promised to bring a reed to Lisa... He didn't do it, and the relationship suffered as a result. Now, promises actually undergird society. I don't know if you've ever really thought of that. Even if we don't necessarily use that word promised or promises, it actually undergirds society. And there can be big promises, and there can be small promises. And the reality is you never actually know what's going on inside someone. So when they say they're going to do it, you kind of just have to take them on their word, don't you? Can we trust the heart behind the words that they're saying? And like I said, it can be a small example. So, for example, you might give someone five bucks to go get you a coffee if you're somewhere in the shy, maybe six or seven, because it's hipster. 
and you're trusting them that they're actually going to deliver. That's a small promise. What about a big promise? Say, like a wedding vow, where you promise you're going to be with your spouse for the rest of their life, no matter what happens. So big promises, small promises. And when those promises are broken down, the relationship inevitably suffers. Perhaps you can think of your own life and times in your own existence and your own experience where people have broken promises to you. How much that hurts. And like I said, it may not have even been an official promise, but when they've said a reality to you or, or expressed something to you, and yet the opposite has found out to be the actual truth. The relationship suffers. What we really need to do is ask this question, can we trust the heart behind the words? Because we can say all sorts of stuff. But can we trust the heart behind the words? Can we trust the heart behind the words? I think we need to um, ask that question of God as well. God says a lot of things. Can we trust what he's saying? Can we trust that he's actually going to come through? What do we learn about the heart of God from this passage? Well, I've got kind of four main sort of, sort of ideas that I'm going to sort of express as I go on here that really give us a reason why we can trust God why we can express the heart behind the words that he says. So the first thing, a metal word here, by the way, it's called the bigness of God. That's just grammatically horrific. Is bigness a word? I'm not sure. Let's, let's talk about it later. Hopefully you know what I'm saying. Maybe you don't. I'm going to explain. So just the bigness of God. Why can we trust God? Look, look what this passage says. I'm going to go from verse 9. It should be on the screen behind me. Great if you're following your Bibles as well. Verse 9. So I now establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, and every living creature that was with you, the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant of all, for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I don't know if you heard the repetition, the I. I did this. I did this. This is all directed by God. And so how do we know that God can come through with the promises he makes? Well, because of his bigness. This isn't a story about how we are saving ourselves and how we are redeeming ourselves and how we are pulling ourselves out of a horrific situation. This is all, all, all about God. It's centered on God. It's because of his um, design. It's because of his action, because of his um, redeeming the situation. It's God, God, God. It's not a story of us. It's a story of God. We saw it at the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say in the beginning Tim, or in the beginning James, or in the beginning Meg, or whoever. I'm just speaking on people out at the front. It's all about God. This sounds like a bit of a contradiction, but it's actually something that actually gives us incredible peace. It gives me incredible peace. And if you've ever realised that and reflected on that, that this life is not about you. You're not the main player in your life. How does that make you feel? I think there's a contradiction there because our whole sort of culture and our whole sort of narrative in the modern world tells us that society and life is all about you. There's a whole bunch of philosophical and social reasons why that's the case. But we put ourselves above reality, we put ourselves above ethics, above morality, above everything. Because we're the ultimate engineers of our fate. 
That's what we hear in our modern culture, and that's what feeds social media. That's what feeds so many of the films and stories in which we engage. It's all about you. It's you, 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 and that's not what we see in Genesis, is it? This is the story of God. He's the one who's going to fulfill his promises, not you and not me. And like I said, it gives this strange contradicting peace. I remember years ago, this is when I was a, a new Christian. Uh, this is a church I was going to in Miranda. We worked through a, a book called The Purpose Driven Church um, by a guy called Rick Warren. I don't know if you've heard of him. You may not agree with everything he says. That's okay. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says as well. He's done a lot of amazing things in the service of God. He's a pastor from America, from California, I think. Anyway, he said this, this passage, and like I said, I was probably about 21, and I, and I read this, um, and it just struck me. Like, there's no reason why I should find this so encouraging, and yet I did. This is the passage he says, and it should come up on the screen. He says this, It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. It echoes Genesis, doesn't it? What we saw in the very first verse. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And I remember as a young 21-year-old, kind of relatively young Christian, just going, wow. There's no logical, rational reason why that should make me happy, and yet it does. It's almost like the burden of myself is taken away from myself. And God is the main player. It's almost like our lives are a drama or a play. And we're kind of like, what do you call it when there's a backup person, you know, the second field? God's the main player. And the truth is we're only going to have peace when we realize that. Why can we trust God to come through? Because of his bigness, because of his largeness, because of the sheer magnitude of who he is. The second thing I really want to emphasize is just the generosity of God. He shows this again and again and again. Why can we trust him? Why can we see that the heart of God is good for us, good for us in terms of our intentions? Look what he says here in verse 1. Chapter 9, the generosity of God. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Notice that echoes what was actually given to Adam right at the beginning. So the creation mandate theologians call that. It's actually reinforced, restored. And it goes on. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the beasts in the sky on every creature that moves along the ground. <clears throat> Excuse me. And all fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about you, uh, about will be food for you. Just as I give you, I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And he sort of says something similar in verse 7. I don't think it's on the screen. Sorry, Lisa. But it says this, just repeating the, this creation mandate. And the, and the repetition is really important. So be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now, some people have read heaps into this. It's almost like, you know, before this period of time, people were vegans or vegetarians. I just don't think that's what it's saying. I read a whole bunch of sort of bits and pieces and scholars as they're thinking about this. They're saying that's actually overreaching what the point of this is. It's very likely they did eat meat before this. I think the main point, and there's nothing wrong with being a vegan or vegetarian, please don't hear me saying that, um, but I don't think that's what this passage is saying. So some branches of Christianity would argue that. I don't think that's what this is saying. It's just emphasising, though, that God is saying, all things are yours again. It's pointing to the generosity of God. Here is what God has done for you. Notice also that this is all coming from God. And so what we saw in the earlier chapters before this, in humanity's rebellion, humanity's rejection, we see humans seizing things, taking things, 
We see that in the narrative of Cain, the descendants of Adam and Eve. We saw that in the narrative of Lamech. We see that in the horrible, violent situation just before the flood. Seizing, grabbing, greed, hunger driving their actions. But instead of grasping now, notice how we put our hands out and we receive from God who's giving us the blessings. We receive. It's like we're grasping and we actually have that flipped. Now we're receiving. We see that these things come from God. God is generous. And it changes our heart posture so much. So much. My natural inclination is to seize and grasp and have as many things as I possibly can. But if I flip and see that I'm actually receiving these things from God, it changes the way my heart thinks about things. I was reflecting on this in terms of my car. I have a pretty hot car. Um, so it's a 2000 Corolla that's been knocked around and scratched and beaten up. It's a chick magnet. It's amazing. It's a great car. That's a joke, by the way. Like, it's, it's not a good car. Now, me and my sort of selfishness and my sinfulness, let's be honest, I sometimes long for something better, you know. I want a better car. I want something a bit flashier. I want something that my, my phone would just link into, you know. I'd press something on my phone and it just plays for the radio. Unfortunately, I've got to get one of those things where you've got to plug it in and all that sort of stuff. Um, my, my car's a bit of a bomb. But if I sort of turn my hand around and actually see it as a blessing from God, you see how it just changes? I start to think, actually, that car came to me at a time when financially I was probably struggling a bit and couldn't afford anything better. Financially, things were really, really uncertain, and I didn't know if I could actually pay for another car. And that car is actually super solid. It's a good car. It's reliable. It gets me from A to B. And I actually quite enjoy driving it, even though it's a bit of a bomb. 2000 Corolla, the holy roller, I call it. But you notice how it just changes? It's like we go from this sort of seizing posture to receiving. How would that change the way you think about elements of your life? Perhaps you're in a job where you're frustrated and you're annoyed and you want something better, you want something more. See, maybe we just need to flip and see it as a blessing from God. God's put you into this place for a reason, for a season. He's bringing about fruit. Perhaps it could be a place to live. You know, you want to move out and spread out and get a bigger place, a place with more space or more access to coffee shops or whatever. And you see the place you're in right now, and you say, actually, God's blessed me by putting me here. And you see the good things. You see the things that he's bringing about because of where he's placed you. The generosity of God. How are you going with that? I I struggle with it. I struggle. I want to seize. I need to receive. That's why we can trust the heart of God and his promises. Third thing I really want to emphasize, this part's tricky from the passage I'm going to jump from verse 4. So the justice of God. You must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it, or lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. Uh, I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, while humans shall their blood be shed for the image of God, God has God made mankind. Now, what's this saying? It's kind of complicated. Um, like I said, I did a bit of reading about it, what it's trying to say. It just seems basically that it's reinforcing the, the reality of justice, the justice of God. And this idea that we read about of the lifeblood is symbolic of life itself. And you're not allowed to take that unjustly from, from the animal world. 
And even more, you're not allowed to take that unjustly from the human world. Look what it says in verse 6, and there's a reason why he says this. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now again, you can read all sorts of kind of ways of understanding justice and the legal system into that. I really don't want to get into that. The big idea is that there is a thing called justice and God is reinforcing that. We saw a really graphic example of that in the flood last week. And I explained that, and that will continue. And we also need to understand that this justice isn't a case of kind of these people out there are doing the wrong thing and these people over there. He's actually put that split right in the hearts of us all. So the, the capacity for evil is within us. So I'm going to take us back to chapter 8. Remember what it says in verse 21. After the curse, I'm just going to go from the, the second half there. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So that comes from chapter 8. So it's not as if the flood solved that problem, right? So he needs to reinforce justice here. And like I said, it's sort of between the middle of us here. I was watching an action movie just the other day called Lethal Weapon. Probably showing my age. It has Mel Gibson. He's like 25. He's really young. And other few actors. It's really interesting. Um, super 80s, like massive 80s action flick. And basically, it's this horrible thing happens. And they spend the rest of the movie trying to avenge what happens. It's like a revenge flick. And, you know, it's almost like an old cowboy and western in a, in a cop flick. And that's often the way we think about justice. You know, evil's out there. Evil's out there. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that evil is actually in here. It's in you and it's in me. So we can't put it into a political system or a religious system or a kind of national system. We can't do that. We need to deal with it in here. And God reigns it in. That's the picture of justice that we're seeing here. God reigning it in. I was reined in this this week. Um, I received a really nasty email on Monday. Um, really critical, really unhelpful. And you know how sometimes you draft an email? Um, I must... I don't know if I should say this. Yeah, I'm going to go with it. I might have... I might, uh, sources are unclear. But I might have um, suggested in the email that the guy was a passive-aggressive coward. And I might have um, said he should have had the, the manliness to come and actually talk to me as a human being. Now, those sources are untested. We don't actually know if that's the truth. <laughs> I was nice with the way I said it, but that's basically the gist of what I was saying. Anyway, I wrote this, I wrote this email, and then I was reading it and going, oh, maybe I shouldn't send that. And I work with an office assistant. This is in my other job with the, with the FCC. And I said, oh, can you just read this email before I send it? Uh, I probably need to have someone check it. And she did, and she said, yeah, Tim, you can't send that. <laughs> and she said, Tim, think about it. Give yourself two or three days, calm down, um, see if you want to send it again on Thursday. And I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't send it. It's still sitting in my draft emails, by the way. Um, I'm so glad I didn't send this email, even though in, a, in some ways it was justified. But see how the, the, I was kind of reined in? I was pulled in? You know, I kind of want to respond. I want to shoot from the hip. I want to draw my sword and start swinging. But I was pulled in. That's the picture of justice that we get here. God pulls us in from the worst of ourselves. Lastly, the mercy of God. How can we trust in his promises? How can we trust in the heart behind his words? Well, look at his mercy. Look what he says here in verse 13. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. and It will be a sign of the covenant. Just remember that idea of rainbow. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again 
will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth, on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Now we read this and we hear about this idea of a rainbow. It's actually really, really important. So like a rainbow for me is just kind of a thing that floats in the air after it rains, after a storm, um, leprechauns and all that sort of stuff. I've never seen a leprechaun, maybe you guys have. Um, they sort of sit on the end of the rainbow with their gold. Um, that's, that's my association with rainbows. But if we actually look at the way the rainbow is actually referred to in this passage, it's really interesting. Um, most people look at the word rainbow and they say that it actually can be a little bit ambiguous in the original language. Now, I don't speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, but I've read some people who are talking about this. And the word rainbow can also be understood in terms of a bow. So like a bow and arrow. Like a war bow, in other words. And when we see it, you might notice that a rainbow is like an upside-down bow. And so God came in judgment through the flood. He was almost pointing the arrow of judgment down onto earth, earth and humanity. But now that war bow has been turned the other way up, in peace. So that's what the symbolism is talking about. And we hear this language of a sign. This is a sign, a promise of God that he's not going to do this again. The justice has been laid aside. A guy called Tim Keller, who's a pastor in America, actually takes this much further. And he says, actually, the war bow, even though it's pointed upwards, doesn't mean it's no longer pouring out judgment. And you can disagree with this, but Keller's pretty smart. And basically, he says that the judgment's actually still going on, but it's been turned up against God himself. So rather than pointing down onto us, as we deserve because of our sin, it's been pointed onto, pointed onto him. And we see this in the cross, don't we? Where Jesus took on the judgment that was for us. It's amazing how Paul reflects on this later. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And I think he's actually referring to the promises that we see all the way through Scripture. He says this. I'm just going to read it through. But surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you, by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. And look what it says here. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us as we give glory to God. I'll read that again, just from verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And we can say that God is true to his word, that we can uh, trust the word behind or the heart behind the words, mainly because of the cross. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Now, again, people think about these promises and look at the links, and people see the parallels between this promise given to Noah and the promise just a few chapters later given to Abraham. How if he steps out in faith and leaves his country of home, his home country, he's going to um, become the, the sort of uh, descendants or the, the, the leading line in a, in a whole system of people that's going to actually bring about the saviour of the world. And that's what we see in Jesus, the one who took the judgment onto himself. How do you go with the promises of God? How do you understand them? Can we trust the heart behind the words? I think we can. I'll give you an example just to, to wrap up. Um, 
because we look at track records for promise, don't we? If someone says a promise, we look at what have they done in the past? What have they done for us to actually prove that they're worthy? I remember a situation where one of my brothers was stuck in South America. And he rang me up. He couldn't get onto my, my old man, my father. And he was stuck there. I don't know, there's like a typhoon or a cyclone or something. And um, his, his airplane wouldn't fly him out. So he actually needed four grand to get out of the country. So there were some joint flights and bits and pieces. And he needed four grand buzz to him like immediately to get out. And I mean, if a stranger rang me up and said, hey, I need four grand, I'd say, well, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'm sorry, man. I'm sure you're a nice dude. But I'm not going to give you four grand. Because I know my brother, and he's a relatively trustworthy dude, I know he's going to give me the money back. I've seen the things he's done through his history. I've seen his character. I've seen his reliability over the history of our relationship. I know that I can trust the heart behind the words, and so I gave him the money. And he got back safely. How can we trust... God, how can we trust the heart behind the words? Well, through what he's done. Through the history of him working with his people, through his bigness, the story that's about him, through his generosity, the fact that he is blessing upon blessing upon blessing, through his justice, the way he reigns us in, and through the mercy that we see in the life and death of Jesus that saves us. Let's pray as I finish. Uh, Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that every promise that you have made is yes in Christ. Thank you that we can look upon him as our saviour, even when we don't deserve it, even in spite of our sin and our rebellion against you. Thank you that from the very earliest stages of history, you have shown yourself to be trustworthy, that we can trust the words that you say in your promises. And thank you so much that the ultimate answer to that promise is Jesus and what he, done for, what he has done for us on the cross. And it's in his hope that we pray this afternoon. Amen. Hopefully.